Welcome to the 127th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Django Wexler, the author of the new Flintlock fantasy novel, The Thousand Names. Stay tuned for the interview. So welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Django Wexler, author of a new fantasy novel, The Thousand Names, book one of the Shadow Campaigns. Django, welcome to the podcast. Hi, glad to be here. Sure. Well, at the outset, can I have you read the first couple of pages or a couple of pages from your new novel, The Thousand Names? Uh, sure. This is a section from chapter six. Um our our protagonist winter who is uh i'm not sure it's relevant for this particular chapter but she's in disguise as a man to to uh be a part of the the vordenai army is leading her troops on a scouting mission and is just about to encounter the enemy um all right <clears throat> bobby drifted over to winter the boy was plainly exhausted sweat running down his face in rivulets but he struggled gamely onward under the weight of pack and musket. He even managed a smile. Aren't... Uh, he labored for a moment to catch his breath. Aren't we getting a bit far out? Winter snorted. DeVries thinks the colonel has ordered him to personally chase down the entire enemy army. He'll get a dressing down from Captain Devoir, I bet. Maybe, Winter shrugged. Captain Devoir is a busy man. Think he'll call a halt when we get to the top of the next ridge? God Almighty, I hope so. Winter looked at the perspiring troops now struggling up the slope. Otherwise, we won't even need to run into the Redeemers. The sun's bad enough. Bobby nodded wearily. They walked on in silence, picking their way around occasional screes of loose rock or clumps of hardy shrubs and grass. This ridge was taller than the one that ran along the road, and Winter imagined it would afford quite a view. She hoped that DeVries would be satisfied with taking a look from the top. There was a surprised shriek from her right, followed by a burst of laughter. Sarge, I think something bit Cooper. More laughter. Winter left Bobby's side and hurried over to a small group of soldiers, acutely aware that getting bit by something in Kandar was no laughing matter. In the city, she'd known a Kandarai trapper who'd claimed there were 107 varieties of snakes in the Lesser de Sol, and at least a dozen kinds of scorpions. Each was dangerous in its own particular way. On inspection, however... Cooper turned out merely to have stepped in a pricker bush, whose barbed thorns had snagged his trousers and drawn angry red scratches down his leg. Winter got the lad disentangled, much to the amusement of his companions. As she straightened up, there were shouts from above at the top of the ridge. Winter thought at first that another man had had an encounter with local wildlife, but from the volume it sounded as though the whole company had stumbled into a nest of snakes. Above it she heard the high, shrill voice of the lieutenant. Back! Go back! He came into sight over the top of the ridge, his terrified horse moving far too fast already, blood spotting the animal's flanks where he'd kicked it viciously with his spurs. A few soldiers followed, picking their way down the rocky slope as fast as their legs would carry them. Winter spat a curse. She forced herself to move, sprinting the last dozen yards to the crest of the ridge, and found most of the seventh company still gathered there. The thin line had contracted to a tight bunch as the soldiers instinctively huddled together. The top of the ridge afforded an excellent view. Over her shoulder, Winter could see the ocean, though the coast road and the Vordenai army were blocked by the lower ridge behind them. 
Ahead of her, to the south, the furrowed land stretched on and on until it flattened out into the sandy wastes of the Lesser de Sol. The objects of the soldiers' attention were closer at hand, however. Off to the east, the coast road became visible again as it swung inland to avoid some obstacle, and there a vast host had gathered. It looked more like a camp than an army, with tents and crude banners showing the crimson flame of, of the redeemers on a black field. Men milled around, reduced to ants by the distance, and there was no mistaking the flash of the sun from polished steel blades. Spreading south and east from the camp was an apparently endless tide of horsemen. They rode in small groups of twenty or thirty, and there were more groups than winter could count, covering the valley at the foot of the ridge. They were shabby-looking men, ununiformed and mounted on scrawny beasts liberated from lives as carts or field animals. But they screamed and drew swords when they saw Vordenai blue against the horizon. Priests in black wraps egged them on, screaming loudest of all and waving the riders forward. The lieutenant was still shouting, barely audible over the shrieks of the redeemers. Back! Back to the column! I think I'd probably cut it there. Okay. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about the thousand names yet, how would you describe your new novel? Um, let's see. Uh, I, my elevator pitch, as, as they say, has become that it's, it's Bernard Cornwall sharp, but with magic. Um, it's, uh, it was originally based on the Napoleonic Wars, uh, my, my, my first idea was to actually just do a fantasy retelling of the story of Napoleon Bonaparte, but it, it kind of diverged enormously from that. And so what it left me with is this fan, this military fantasy in, uh, set in a time frame that's like maybe 1790 in, in our world, although it's a, it's a secondary world, but that's what the technology roughly is about. Uh, so, you know, muskets and cannons and cavalry charges, but also magic in a kind of a subtle, interesting way. Great. Well, well, as you, as you mentioned, many fantasy novels tend to focus on a quasi medieval setting with knights and armor and sword fights, but your novel, it has guns, muskets, cannons, and also magic. What what inspired you to write what is being referred to as a flintlock fantasy versus a fantasy with a medieval setting? I I just love that my that you know that term flintlock fantasy didn't exist while I was writing it, and it, it's only happened once I come out. A, a few people seem to have gotten the same idea all at once. There's me, uh, Brian McClellan, Leigh Bardugo, and a couple of others have written these these fantasies that take place in this time. I'm really happy about that. Um, the uh, for me, it was uh, you know saying that I'm a fan of of George R. R. Martin is kind of cliche now, but in in 2000, which is about when I I was reading him for the first time before the HBO series, you know this it, it it's hard to hard to remember how much of a revelation that was that he took this sort of knights and castles medieval fantasy and brought it back closer to its historical roots that that you know it was not was not such a nice time particularly for the people who were not lords and ladies um and that you know that really resonated with me and i love the idea of doing a fantasy but taking a lot of inspiration from history um but and i also felt like george martin had kind of done the knights and castles thing maybe as well as anyone was gonna do it 
And so I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to do the, the, the sort of historically based fantasy, I need to, to do something else. And it had always been a little weird to me that with all of history over the whole world to choose from, fantasy authors for their archetype basically focus on the 13th century in England uh, or even a sort of weird version of the 13th century filtered through Mallory and Tolkien and D&D. Uh, so I thought, okay, you know, let's do something else. And then, um, I read a, a book uh, called the campaigns of Napoleon by David Chandler, which is a spectacular history, which I recommend to everyone. Uh, if you're into, into, you know, campaigns, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and I thought this, this is it, this is what I want to do. And so that's kind of what I ended up doing. That's great. Well, well, when you, when you started working on the thousand names, as you just described, did, did you have the magical element in mind from the beginning? Because um, as you've mentioned, and, and, you know, as the book shows, I mean, you know, a, a vast portion of the book could be read as, as, you know, kind of a take on Napoleonic, you know, with, without um, a ton of magic. So I just wondered, you know, what the process was for you in kind of integrating that magical element into the overall plot. Um. It's interesting. So I I knew that there was going to be a magic system I, because I needed, you know, I'm a fantasy fan at heart. It would be hard for me to write a book without one. I love that stuff. But at the same time, because I wanted to write this this sort of military fantasy, I wanted the the battles and the 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 non-magical characters to matter. Um and I find in a lot of books uh you know, it, when there's magicians who can destroy armies by waving their hands, then the the non-magicians always feel sort of pointless. Um, Stephen Erickson does a good job of this in his books, that his magicians are so powerful that they're the only people worth talking about, essentially. Um, this is in the Malazan Book of the Fallen. Right. Um, so, so, and I like that too, but that's just not the way I want it to go since it would feel kind of silly to do, to have really powerful magic and to then spend a bunch of time on, on soldiers fighting. Uh, so I, I designed the magic system so that it was kind of subtle and hidden. It's, it's at this point where, I mean, there's this organization basically designed to getting, uh, dedicated to getting rid of magic and it they've gotten to the point where most civilized people don't even believe that it still exists or that it ever existed um and and that that is a was a kind of an interesting take on it so it was always there uh you know in my mind but i didn't want it to dominate the plot uh at least not initially so so that's kind of why it is the way it is. At the same time, the book has a prologue um, from the point of view of, of one of the bad guys, or or maybe bad guys, it depends on how you look at things, um, that shows off some of the magic, which I put in there at, at least partly to just show, yes, this is a fantasy book, and yes, it does have magic in it, you know, if, if you wait. I didn't want to put anyone off to think that they had, you know, people had, might think, oh, I thought this was fantasy, but I guess not. How much have you planned your series beyond the first novel? Do you do you have a projected number of novels at this point in the series, or are you focused strictly on the immediate sequel? Um, it's pretty well planned. It's going to be five books, assuming everything goes well. I mean, you know, I'm never, 
never want to speak too certainly about it. You know, we we all remember, you know, George Martin telling us <laughs> that his his series would be six books long and then it's seven and now, you know, God only knows. But um uh you know, I but when I first submitted the novel to my agent, um he said, okay, before I go out with this to the publishers, I'm going to need a synopsis of the rest of the series of all the other books. And I said, oh, <laughs> and that was kind of the first time I'd really thought hard about it. Um, but it turned out to be incredibly valuable because I did this synopsis, which, you know, ended up being quite extensive and detailed. And a lot of that stuff made it back into the thousand names. So I think it makes the series like tighter as a whole. It was actually kind of a conversion experience for me in terms of planning a lot. I had never really been a big planner, but I I got a real good look at how valuable it is, even if it's kind of painful to do. Um, so so it's actually pretty well planned. Um, the second book is written. I'm editing it now. Um, you know, I... I, I can't speak for the publishers, but I think we're hoping for a, a July release next year, and we're going to try and do one per year. So, you know, hopefully in five years, we'll get them all out. That's the, that's the goal, anyway. That's great. Well, what has your personal writing path been? Had you written any novels or short stories prior to The Thousand Names? And specifically with The Thousand Names, what was the path to publication like for for that novel? You just mentioned you have an agent. So if you could mm -hmm. just talk about that. Sure. Um, so I, I've been a writer for a long time, um, since my, since high school, at least, uh, the, you know, I wrote short stories for a while. Um, I, I got into fan fiction. I wrote fan fiction for a while. Um, in college, I, uh, I finally decided, okay, I'm going to write a fantasy novel that I can sell. Cause so not a fan fiction novel. Um, and I did. It was called Memories of Empire, and I sold it to a small press called Medallion Press. Um, and I sold them another one called Shinigami, uh, which you know, were it was a good learning experience. Um, I'm not, I'm not. It, it's odd. It's not like I'm ashamed of those books, but I'm not. They're not my best work to date either. Um, and uh, but they came out, and basically, not that many people read them, and. Uh, they disappeared without a trace, and so now they're out of print. <laughs> someday, uh, I'm going to convince someone to bring them back, at least as an ebook or something like that, just as a historical curiosity. Um, but uh, then I wrote another book, and I was like, "Man, nah, this isn't very good." So finally, I decided, okay, I'm going to, you know, after doing the small press, I said I'm going to get an agent and get a, a, you know, I thought of it as a real publisher, which is really not fair because there are a lot of small presses that do really tremendous work. Um, but that, that's what I thought at the time. Uh, and, uh, so I did, I, you know, I wrote thousand names and it took a lot longer than I expected because, uh, among other things, I ended up moving across the country and changing jobs completely, uh, in that time frame. So it took about five years to actually get it written. Um, and went through many, many versions. Um, but once I did, uh, then I just started sending it to agents. Um, you know, I, it's funny cause it, I feel like there should be like some clever story about a guy that I met at a convention <laughs> or something, but I went to, I use a website called agentquery.com and I got a list of the agents who I thought might bite. And there were about 50 of them and I sent them all queries. And I think I got probably two positive responses. Um, 
and my agent Seth Fishman, uh, it actually took him two tries to to successfully you know read the book. He turned me down the first time, but I kind of got another shot at him, and he loved it uh, the second time. Um, and and, and what uh, was, I'm just curious, what was that second shot? Did you revise it and send it back to him? Uh, it turns out um, I had a personal connection. His uh, a guy at his agency. Uh, knows somebody that I know and they were like, hey, do you know this Django Wexler guy? And he's like, I think I rejected him. And they're like, did you read his book? I don't know. You'd have to ask <laughs> Seth exactly how that went down. Sure, but, sure. But um, what he said to me later was that at the time I first queried him, his his roster was like really full. And then the second time he had just gotten an assistant and kind of expanded responsibilities and and was looking for new stuff. So the moral is hopefully not that like you need personal connections because I really don't think that that makes much of a difference, but rather that, you know, keep trying because getting turned down by someone is almost never like personal. It's usually has much more to do with just where they are at, at any given time. Sure. Sure. Um, but, uh, anyway, so Seth, so Seth took the book and, uh, we did another draft, uh, based on his feedback. Uh, the big obstacle was that it's really long for uh, an unknown author to to do. I mean, Thousand Names at the time was about two hundred and fifteen thousand words, where a hundred thousand words is usually considered about right for a fantasy novel. Um, and so he thought that was going to be tricky, but we managed to sell it. Um, we ended up cutting it down by about thirty thousand words. There's so you know we cut about ten percent out of it by the time it actually went out. Um, but that was with the assistance of my editor at Penguin, uh, and I think it it helped a lot. So that's kind of where I and so I where, where does it clock in now in terms of it, word count? It's at about one hundred and ninety five thousand. Wow, because uh, it doesn't it doesn't read that long at all. I mean, in terms of the pacing. Yeah, well, fantasy is kind of a weird weird genre because the the big names in fantasy write these enormous books. You know, sure. I think. Uh, Pat Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear is like 400,000 words or some gigantic number. Um, but uh, the publishers don't like that because, you know, it's riskier for them to print these gigantic books. And so if you're, if you're a new author, it's easy to think, oh, well, everybody writes these huge tomes. And I obviously thought that too. Uh, but uh, it makes it a little harder to, to sell. So I got, I got lucky in that respect. Sure, um, sure. So, so what advice do you have for aspiring writers who may be listening who would one day like to have a career selling their novels and short stories? Um, well, so number one is just keep writing all the time. Uh, you know, this people, it's funny because people keep talking about this as my debut novel, which I guess is true. Um, but, you know, for me, this is novel number nine or 10, depending on how you count them. Uh, and so, so it's not like this is the first book I wrote and I sent it out and, you know, oh, here it is. You know, there's, there's a bunch sitting in a trunk somewhere that I, I will probably never see the light of day because they're not very good. Uh, so don't just, you know, write one book and think, this is it. This is my shot. And then if it doesn't work, you're like, oh, man, I'm sad. Uh, you know, just keep going. Um, uh, and it can take a while. Um, you got to get used to rejection and realize that people don't mean it seriously or not seriously, but personally, 
you know, I always try to picture the scene at, at a publisher or an agent's office where you have some unpaid intern who's reading, you know, 50 manuscripts a day and his job is to pass maybe one onto his boss for consideration. And so, you know, when that guy rejects you, uh, it's not because, you know, he's like, you are the worst person ever. And I see a lot of, of aspiring writers getting really upset by rejection. And it's just not, it's not that personal. Um, you're, you're right. And, I worked at a literary agency so in, yeah. New York, in New York City, so I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, it, you, if you talk to anyone who reads slush piles, it's just, you know, some of it is just a numbers game. You know, you happen to hit the right person on the day when they're like, you know, I could really use such and such a story. And, you know, you hit them on that day with that story and it works. Whereas if it had been yesterday, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, um, and, and so I, I always have... tell a story. I, I recommended to my boss that she uh, pass on a novel that sold a few weeks later for uh, uh, one and a half million dollars. So, oh yeah, yeah. That yeah, if you it's talk all to subjective, a- <laughs> yeah. If you talk to agents in New York and editors, every one of them has a story like, "Oh, I passed on Fifty Shades of Grey," or "I passed on Harry Potter," or whatever. You know, they all have these stories about about the you know the one that got away. Uh, as it as it were so so that's a that's good advice um so yeah you know keep trying and you know be persistent um in in the modern world you know that we're in a really interesting time as far as self-publishing goes uh and i think that's still kind of in flux and changing rapidly and so it's really hard to give good advice and obviously i'm not qualified anyway since i don't do that um but uh, my advice would be don't rush into it. Uh, I see a lot of people who, who you know, finish the draft of a book and just throw it up on Amazon and they're like, ha ha, I'm published. And that's just not going to get you anywhere. That um, I think it was Michael Sullivan who said something like, you know, if you're self-publishing a book, your goal for, should be for it to be as good as any book that comes out of a traditional publisher. And that means, you know, editing and revising and and getting a good cover and all that stuff if you wanted to get anywhere. Uh, so, so I'm, I'm not saying like never do self publishing, but you got to really take it seriously. Sure. Sure. So, so what books and authors have you read lately that impressed you or that inspired you that you would mention? Uh, lately, huh? That's, or, you know, we can expand that to like the last year or two. Um, let's see. Uh, I re- so I read a lot of history, um, and that is and often fine. inspiring. Um, what have any, I read? any, any nonfiction history books that you'd mention? Um, so I read the Steven Pinker's book, um, several of his books, the, uh, uh, the better angels of our nature and the blank slate, which are both really good, um, in terms of, of nonfiction. It's kind of like a, human behavior the better angels of our nature is about violence and the nature of violence and where it comes from and why we live now in a much less violent society than any humans have ever lived in um so it's actually a really optimistic book which is kind of unusual uh but uh and so i recommend that and then um historically i've been reading um uh robert massey uh who wrote dreadnought which is probably one of my favorite historical books of all time about the the naval arms race between Britain and Germany before World War One, And he also wrote uh, 
but now he's writing about the Russian nobility. So I read his book about Peter the Great, which was fantastic. Um, in terms of fiction, I've, I'm pulling up my list here. I, I keep lists obsessively. Um, I read You by Austin Grossman, which is great if you like video games or you know, are interested in the sort of history and practice of video games, I think is just fantastic. Um, I read Neil Gaiman's new book, which I love. I'm a Neil Gaiman fan from way back. Uh, you know, his, his short stories are probably some of the best short story writing I have ever, I know of. Um, so that was, that was great. Um, after, uh, Cameron Hurley published an, an article online about, uh, uh, women in genre fiction and and how not to treat them, and that was uh, was really good. And I ended up reading her book God's War, which I really liked. Um, so uh, it, it's kind of a weird science fiction thing set in a world where where they have you know organic insectoid life to do all their work basically. You know, so they they have insects uh almost magic although it's it's sort of technically a science fictional setting um i like brian mcclellan's book obviously it's uh it's in my it's not that similar to uh to thousand names overall like it's a very different mm, thrust i'd say but the the setting is at least vaguely similar uh so if you enjoy kind of muskets and magic that's definitely promise of blood is the name of his book um, definitely That's on my to be read list. So yeah, um, great. Well, what what are you working on now in terms oh, of your writing? Let me mention one more book. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I read definitely. Peter Hamilton's Great North Road. I love Peter Hamilton. His his Void trilogy and um, the the Pandora Star duology are both fantastic. And Great North Road is a standalone, although it's a gigantic tome. It's like a thousand pages. But uh, but really, just a, a wonderful kind of near future. Well, not that near, but sort of. He he has a gift for writing science fictional futures with like recognizable human beings in them, which is really kind of not all that common. So, uh, Great North Road is is wonderful. Great. Sorry, go ahead and ask that other question again. Oh, I was just wondering, what are you working on now in terms of your writing? Uh, so I have um. I have two series, actually. I have a middle grade series, so that's for like 8 to 12 year olds. Um, call, uh, the first book is called The Forbidden Library, and that comes out in April. Um, so I'm kind of alternating between that and the, the Thousand Names series, the Shadow Campaigns. Um, I have finished the... So the, the Forbidden Library is done, and uh, I've written the sequel to it. Uh, and right now I'm working on editing uh, the the Shadow Throne, which is the the new title for the second book in uh, the Shadow Campaigns, um, which is like, uh, well, I'm trying to think how much I can say without spoiling it for everyone. Um, they go back to the home country to Vordon, and uh, you know, there's there's politics and intrigue and and a bunch of other really good stuff. I'm really, really excited about it. It's a lot of fun. Great. Well, we'll look forward to that next year. So yeah. uh, where can people find you online if they're interested? Uh, well, if you go to DjangoWexler.com, uh, that's, that's my sort of home. Uh, 
and that has all links to everything. Um, uh, in particular, since this is the sort of release period for Thousand Names, there's a bunch of of blog posts that I wrote, uh, you know, and I try to to make my blog posts actually, you know, talk about something that I find interesting rather than just saying, "Hey, you know, buy my book" over <laughs> and over again. Um, so that's, you know, that's probably probably helpful. Well, you never know. I mean, it's hard. It's it makes it easier for me to write anyway. Yeah. It's it gets it gets a little boring writing, you know, buy my book over and over again. <laughs> There's that scene from the critic with the robot that goes buy my book. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but so you know, people can check that out. And I'm also collecting reviews of the thousand names. Uh, There's been some very kind reviews from various sources. Um, and uh, social media-wise, I spend most of my time on Twitter. Uh, so if you go to Twitter at, at Django Wexler, that's me. Um, uh, if you can't spell my name, by the way, it's D-J-A-N-G-O. Uh, although now that uh, Quentin Tarantino came out with his movie, everybody knows how to spell it. Before that, nobody, every people would be like, what, Django? The D um, is silent. D is silent, indeed. Um, <laughs> or if you if you do Facebook, then if you go to, I think it's, uh, let me look here. It's author Django Wexler. Um, that's my my Facebook profile, which is mostly just ported from my Twitter. But if you prefer to to read it that way, that's uh, that's also good. Um, so that's that's where you can find me online. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Django Wexler, author of the new Flintlock fantasy, The Thousand Names, and the book is available in bookstores now. So go grab a copy. And Django, thanks for doing this interview. Uh, you're very welcome. <laughs>